Well, hello. You know, I think one of the most amazing moments in life is when a baby utters his or her first word. You know, parents wait for that moment. They anticipate it. They even try to accelerate it at times by getting in the baby's face and saying, Mama, Dad, Dad, or in my case, Pappy. And I know moms and dads who actually spend hours coaching their child, persuading their child. And it all seems kind of silly to me, really. I mean, who cares, right? It's not like I go around bragging because all three of my kids said dad first. But soon after they learn mommy and daddy, they usually learn their next word. No. Psychologists tell us that this is a very important word. They say that it helps the child individuate, set boundaries, assert identity. So they say this no stage is a, is a good stage. And I'm assuming that these psychologists probably do not have young children of their own. But it also happens around this time that kids pick up another word that they use a lot. Maybe when someone wants to play with one of their toys or maybe tries to wear some of their clothes or taste some of their food. What is this word? Mine. And this becomes the favorite word. Everything's my toys, my stuff, my room, my food, mine. Mine, mine. But it's not just kids, though, is it? I mean, some people go to their grave with this being their favorite word. I mean, they may not say it out loud, but it marks them. It's on their wallet. It's on their checkbook. It's on their house. It's on their car. It's on their time, their entire life. Mine, mine, mine. And ultimately, the day will come when you will say one of two words to God. Either you're going to say yours, God, everything I have, everything that I am, yours, God. Or you will say to God, mine. I give you nothing. I submit nothing. So the day is going to come when every human being, everyone here will say to God one of two words, yours or mine. One word's heaven. One word's hell. And God's going to say, okay, either way. I receive you. I receive your life as a gift. Or God will say, I'll allow you to be separate from me for all eternity. You know, we've been talking about David all summer long. We've been doing this series about David. David was a true champion. David was a true champion that said the word yours to God. Now, we discovered in the weeks previous that there's many areas of David's life where he messed up. I mean, a lot of things that David messed up bad. He mishandled sexuality, power. His family, as we're going to see later on in this series, was a, largely a disaster. He was not always honest 
But I will tell you one thing that David got right. He had a generous heart. David loved to give. David loved to share. And I feel that this is important because there's so many people that get defeated in this area of the Christian life. Because I think a lot of people in churches, they wonder, does what the Bible teaches about possessions and materialism and so on mean that I'm supposed to give away everything that I have? Should I feel guilty about owning or enjoying anything? You know, I had a gentleman in the church approach me once. He said he wanted to voice his opinion, and he wanted my honest opinion on something. He was angry. He was upset because he didn't feel that our pastor, Chris, was representing the Christian lifestyle very well. I asked him to explain why he felt that way, and he told me that the big, nice house the bunches lived in was a slap in the face to the congregation. I reminded him of our pastor's master degree that he worked very hard to attain. I reminded him that our pastor married a doctor that had worked very hard to get where she was and that being successful because of hard work and wise managing of money is not against God's plan. Still not deterred? I told him no one in this church gives as much as the bunches do. Neither time nor money. And it's true. Their success is only overshadowed by their generous giving. With still no success in the persuading department, I finally told him he needed to mind his own business and he needed to take care of his own personal walk with Christ. I mean, I really hate gossip and whining. But I really dislike it when you're pointing fingers at one of my best friends and the one person that I know that tries to honor God every single day of his life. I mean, is Chris perfect? Of course not. The guy's got flaws. If you stood my son, Ethan, shirtless on stage, and you stood Chris shirtless and made him flex... You wouldn't be able to tell the two apart. My son's eight. He's got more muscle tone. Also, Chris is not always the smartest guy in a room. You know, he called me one day. It was in the winter. It was negative five. It was freezing out. And he called me to tell me he was in Ball State. He had a flat tire and he didn't know how to use his jack. So he sat in the warm truck while the heater was running, which now that I'm thinking about it, that was actually pretty smart because he was warm and I was risking frostbite on my fingers as I was changing his tire. But he honestly does try to honor God with his actions. I mean, the bunches are in Kenya, as you know right now, on a mission to help with orphans and AIDS. I mean, I don't think that's misrepresenting the Christian lifestyle or leading the congregation astray. And that person honestly left the church. 
after our conversation. You know, God's plan is not that you have to give everything away. It's not that you can't enjoy what you have worked hard to get. It's just that you don't want to drift into the standards that our society has regarding material possessions. That becomes the problem. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Meaning, basically, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. And I don't think there's an area of life where Christians get squeezed into the world's mold more than this whole area of material possessions. And I think David has a lot to teach us in this area. David didn't live like a hermit, and he wasn't called to by God. Like many in our society, more so than most of us, David was entrusted with much in the way of material possessions. He wasn't called to give all that stuff away. But also, somehow, all that stuff did not get a hold on his heart. And he developed one of the most generous hearts in Scripture. And I believe that he can be a role model for us, a very important one, to help us get clarity on this question. What does a generous heart look like? I mean, what does an authentic, Christ-honoring generous heart look like? And how do I know, more importantly, if I'm growing as a Christ follower in the way of stewardship? You know, there's so many stories in the Bible of just David's generosity that I couldn't confine us to just one today. So today we're going to look at three facets of a generous heart. And we're going to do this by looking at three stories of David's excellence in giving. So three facets of a generous heart, and the first one is this. A generous heart focuses on the needs of others. A generous heart focuses on the needs of others. A generous heart focuses on the needs of other people more than on your own discontent. I mean, one way to know if you're developing... Generosity is you find yourself moved more by the needs of people in need around you than moved by your own sense of discontent. If we go to 1 Samuel 30, verse 9, this is a very classic example of David doing that. And we actually read this, the beginning of this story a few weeks ago. If you remember, Chris talked about David having this little community of those who were in debt or distress. And you may remember that they established a refugee village in Ziklag. And while they were away raiding the Philistines, a group of Amalekites came and they burned their village down. So they carried off their wives, they carried off their children, they carried off all their possessions. And if you remember, this about wiped them out. They were ready to stone David at this point. But David prayed, and God said, You ought to go after the Amalekites who have taken away your village. So David rallies everybody, and we're going to pick this up in verse 9. 
David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. So David rallied the men. He leads them on a forced march south. They push hard for about 15 miles or so, and they come to this ravine. It's a dried creek bed, the Basur Ravine. About a third of the men at this point, they say, we can't go another step. We were already wiped out when we got home and found that the village was destroyed. Now, after this march... We don't have it in us anymore. We ain't got the strength. We haven't got the spirit. We are done. So David allows them to stay with the supplies. Now remember these guys, because we're going to come back to them. Then if we go to verse 11, the men that went on with David, they stumble onto an Egyptian that's in the desert. This guy is exhausted. He's starving. He'd been left there by his master to die. He'd been in the desert for three days, three nights. This guy, no food, no water. He would have been near death at this point. And this guy was apparently too much trouble for his own employer. So certainly he wasn't going to be able to expect much from a stranger. And of course, David and his men weren't just strangers. They were Israelites. And if any of you have read your Bible, who enslaved the Israelites for 400 years? Egyptians. So they were by nature mortal enemies. So the best he could have expected from a bunch of Israelites was to possibly, maybe, be left alone and just die in peace. But probably more likely... He'd expect to be killed. But David has this generous heart, this generous spirit that comes on this Egyptian that's dying in the desert. And David said, what's mine is yours. And he gives them some water. He gives them some concannon donuts to sustain his strength. And the man turns out to be one of the servants of one of the Amalekites who had wiped out David's village and carried off their possessions and their families. And David says to this Egyptian, the Amalekites have taken our families. Will you lead us to them? And of course, this man's been left to die by the Amalekites. David saved his life, so he's only too happy to help out. Verse 16 says, He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. Verse 17 says, David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400. Verse 19 goes on to say, Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So this sounds like the end of this story, but it's not, because we still have 
200 guys that stayed behind at the Basur Ravine. In verse 21 it says, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Basur Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. I mean, imagine their response when they see David coming back with their wives and their children and all their possessions. It goes on to say, As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. So these men that the text calls troublemakers, they say it's not fair. We did the work. These guys stayed behind. They're slackers. If they get a share, we will get less. So we're keeping everything to ourselves. So they look at the 200 men who had been exhausted and stayed behind, and they see these undeserving parasites who's going to eat into their profits. And that is kind of the way that the world works. I mean, generally, when we see people in need, we sometimes think that giving to them would threaten our fulfillment and our security. You know, we live in a world that says the secret to fulfillment, the secret to security is more stuff. And giving to other people would mean less stuff. Now look at David in verse 23. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what God has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. And I love his courage right here. He says, Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. So what I want you to notice in this text is the connection between David's gratitude to God and David's desire to be generous. Because David says to the men in the 400, you're thinking about stuff wrong. You know, we were all once a group of discontented, in-debt fugitives. And now we have all this stuff. But we only have it because God was gracious and generous to us. So how can we not be gracious and generous to others? So here's the point. When David has a financial choice to make, he begins by thinking about how gracious and generous God has been to him, and then he asks, how can I be like that? How can I be like that now? And I tell you, any time you face a financial choice, if you start by thinking about how gracious and generous God has been to you, it's hard not to want to be gracious 
and generous to others. That is what a generous heart does. That is what a generous heart looks like. But our world doesn't always work that way. Harvard economist James Dusenberry, after the Second World War, he wrote a classic discussion about what drives America's financial behavior more than anything else. And he is the one that coined the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. He was not talking about them Joneses. Darren Bronson. He was speaking of materialism. If the Joneses have it, I've got to have it. And we do crazy stuff to get it. I mean, we kill ourselves to get stuff. We end up working at jobs we don't even like to make money to buy things that we don't even need to impress people that we don't even really know. And even then, it's not over. I mean, what do you do when the Joneses refinance? I'm going to tell you what you do. This here is going to save everybody a lot of time. It's going to save everybody a lot of money. You declare the Joneses the winner. Declare them the winner. You say, you win the house game. You win the bank account game. You win the car game. You are the winner. Decide that you're going to stop comparing yourself to what other people have. You need to stop acquiring on, based on what the neighbors have or what your co-workers have or what you see on TV. Begin to practice gratitude for what you have so that you are motivated more by others' needs than by personal discontent that you can never be satisfied once you start going down that road. So the first facet of a generous heart is to focus on the needs of others. Here's the second facet of a generous heart. Generous hearts look opportunities to give. They look for opportunities to give. They're proactive. They're intentional. Another way to know that you're developing a generous heart is you start looking for opportunities to give, not just opportunities to acquire. Now in 2 Samuel 24... Verse 18, there's been a very destructive plague in Israel. God stretches forth His hand to stop the destruction. Jerusalem is saved, and we are going to pick it up here in verse 18. It says, On that day God went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Irenu the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Irenu looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Irenu said, Why has the Lord the king come to his servant? 
to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Iron, you said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Iron, you gives all this to the king. Iron, you also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. Then I love this next verse. But the king replied to Iron, You know, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Did you get that? So on the surface, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Because Iron you is offering to give him this stuff. But David is saying, it will not come from my heart to God in the same way if it costs me absolutely nothing. So he's saying, when I give, when I give of my possessions, I give a little part of myself. And my heart changes. It gets a little bit freer from the grip of stuff, a little more devoted to God. And I want that kind of heart, so I want to pay. I will not give to God which costs me nothing. Where's the sacrifice in that? So David is looking for opportunities to give to God. Now this is so countercultural because our world is obsessed with opportunities to get, with opportunities to acquire. But the sign of a generous heart is you begin to look for opportunities to give. You start looking for them. And when you're looking for them, they're there all the time. Something my kids and I have done for the last few years is what we call the Mock Family Outreach. Real cleverly named. But we take off on a Saturday. And we just drive through Muncie. And we just look for ways to reach out to people. And we actually begin by getting in a circle. And we pray. And we ask for God to show us people that are in need. People that are needing something that day from us. And then we drive. And then we search. Each child has input into whatever they feel they're being called to do. My son usually feels called to get some ice cream and bubble gum, but... Who, are, who am I to argue with God, you know? So. But we, we've given out random cash to strangers. We've bought meals for the homeless, Christmas gifts for people at the holidays. My kids have picked out tennis shoes for children that were beginning the school year and would not have had new shoes otherwise. I mean, there's something powerful about sacrificing something about going without something so you can give to someone else. I mean, I could tell you all day amazing stories of people in this church reaching out. Reaching out and being the hands and feet of Christ. People that go out and they build decks for handicapped people. They give cars to families in need. 
They pay for a struggling marriage to get counseling or to go on a marriage retreat. Anonymous checks that have arrived just in time to help someone that was in need. People mowing other people's yards. Certain people always stepping up and cooking for the events. You know, you and the church just now furnished someone with furniture, a TV, a dining room set, money to buy a washer and dryer. Someone that would not have had this stuff if it wasn't for your generous hearts in this church. Here's the deal. When you give, you set in motion a spiritual dynamic that absolutely cannot be held back. It happens to the one who receives the gift. It happens to the one who gives the gift. And it happens to the people who watch it. I mean, you can't give without setting off this spiritual dynamic, putting it in motion. And that is why Jesus said, give, and it will be given back to you. Generous hearts increasingly seek opportunities to give. And they're all around you. We all know someone who is struggling. We all know someone who needs help with something. And don't think because you don't have much money that you can't help. The greatest gifts in the world have been things that cost absolutely nothing. Shoveling an elderly's walk. Visiting a nursing home. Spending time with somebody that's just lonely. My girlfriend Loretta has a little sister from the Big Brother, Big Sister program. And at times, she just takes her to the park. Spends time with her. Costs absolutely nothing but time. But generous hearts look for opportunities to give. Now there's a third thing. The third facet of a generous heart. Generous hearts increasingly experience joy in giving. Experience joy in giving. Generous hearts find themselves filled with gladness more and more when they give. I mean, that's one of the ways you can tell you're developing generosity is that you like to give more. If we look at 1 Chronicles 29 now, in this section, David is leading the people in giving gifts for the building of the temple. He wants to finance a house for the worship of God. Now keep in mind, David initially wanted to build it. But God said, no, you have been involved in too much bloodshed. You have been involved in too much violence. So David decides that he's going to kick off the campaign and he's going to give to it. So he says in verse 2, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. He says in verse 3, Besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver. And then he goes through this long extravagant list of giving, and it actually fills him with joy to be able to give in such a way. And then all of a sudden that, what he's doing, 
gets contagious. And at the end of verse 5, he says, Now who among you are willing to consecrate yourselves today to the Lord? In other words, to give as I've set the example. And if we look at verse 6, this is one of the greatest pictures of the joy of giving and how it can impact an entire community. It says, Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave, what's the next word say? Willingly. And I want you to notice how often that comes up. They gave toward the work on the temple of God. Look at verse 8. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Geoli the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now in verse 14, David is praying to God. He's leading in a prayer at the joy of this giving. And he says, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? So notice his perspective on giving. It says, everything comes from you, God, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willing your people who are here have given to you. So I want you to notice two things about that. One is David and his people are facing a project on a scale that they have never come close to before. I mean, this could have been overwhelming for them. But notice David's perspective. David says everything comes from you. What we give to you just comes from your hand. All this abundance is just stuff that you've given to us. So David's perspective on material possessions is it's not my stuff. God, it's yours, as we talked about earlier, yours. Not the illusion that we have in this world, mine, my stuff, mine, because nothing is really ours. Everything comes from God. It belongs to God. And it's eventually going back to God. You can play with things for a little while. Then somebody else is going to come along. They're going to play with the things for a while. It's not my stuff. David is so clear about this perspective. It's not my stuff. All this stuff that we get so attached to, it's yours, God. Not mine. Now the second thing I want you to notice is that they are able to give with a certain spirit that is willing. A willing spirit. Over and over again in this text, David gives willingly. And God loves that. 
Paul says when he writes to the church at Corinth, Give what you have freely, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the paradox is that we're afraid to give generously because we think that having more stuff is the secret to our happiness. I mean, that is just not a good long-term strategy. Have you ever met a really, really happy, really joyful, greedy person? Absolutely not. And in this story of giving, if you think it was joyful for them, what do you think it must have been like for God? Watching it. In God's heart, seeing all this generous giving, seeing His people actually get it. First David, and then the leaders see David giving, and they give. Then the people see the leaders give. And they're filled with generosity. And they give. I'm going to tell you why this is so moving to me on a more personal level. That was David. David served God in his generation. But now it's our day. I mean, I think about what would happen if that scene got repeated here in our day. I mean, think about it. Over the next couple years, likely, we're going to take on a project on a scale we've never approached before to build a church that impacts East Central Indiana. What if 1 Chronicles 29 came alive in Muncie, Indiana, in our day, just like it did in Jerusalem thousands of years ago. I mean, what if the conviction that all of our stuff belongs to God came as powerfully on us as it did on them? What if this spirit of willing, free, contagious, joy-filled generosity moves as powerfully in the midst of you and me as it did in the people of that day? Verse 12 says, The people rejoiced in the willing response of their leaders. I mean, what if the leaders of this church, those of us who lead... You small group leaders, you that are involved in certain ministries in this church, the partners of this church, what if we get so fired up by the spirit of generosity to the God that all of a sudden other people see it? What if people see it and they just come to the service on Sundays and it starts to get contagious to them? As Chris mentioned, we just had Soda Pop Sunday last week. We we raised $1,865. That was besides the offering. That money, that money saved the lives of three children. Think about how powerful that is. 
three less children will die because of your generosity. I mean, what if we become the kind of church where generosity becomes contagious? Contagious to our sons. Contagious to our daughters. Contagious to our grandchildren. I mean, a church that honestly impacts generations. So then in a world where for centuries upon centuries human beings have grown up saying, Mine, mine. There's going to be a community that gets raised up who have learned to say to God and learned to say to the people that God loves so much, Yours. Yours, God. I pray that that happens here at the Jar Community Church. Let's stand for closing prayer. The prayer team will come forward too if anybody needs prayer for anything afterwards. Let's pray. God, we know that uh, you know our hearts. You know the things we hold tightly to, the things that we cling tightly to, that we value. You know the grip that materialism has on a lot of our hearts. God, we just ask that you open up our eyes. Allow us to see and focus on things that are really important. As we put you first, allow us to see that so many of the things that we value and hold tightly to are not even things of importance. Allow us to prioritize you first, God, then our family and then your church. Everything else is a wave being tossed. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. God, give us eyes to see your people in need, opportunities to reach out, and the courage to act. God, I also just pray that in Colorado right now, that you open people's eyes, generous hearts to be able to reach out for the people and the families that are hurting because of what happened. Allow people to be able to say, Yours, God. In Jesus' powerful name we say, amen. Know you're always loved in this place. Have an awesome week. Next week we will be talking about a compassionate heart.